Welcome to our last message of 2020. And as I say those words, somewhere in me, there's a a shout of praise and thanksgiving to God uh, and hope for brighter days in 2021. Now, you may be interested to know, those of you who maybe wouldn't know this, that I was quite the runner back in the day. My junior year of high school, uh, my team qualified for the state tournament. Uh, We got to go there together. We were actually academic state champs, got our picture taken with a Dairy Farmers of Washington Dairy Princess. It was quite the experience. Anyhow, it was wonderful. And then the next year, my senior year, our team success and and my personal success were sidetracked by injuries, but a couple of my friends still made it to the state race, and myself and, and my twin brother Jason, we got to tag along to watch them run. And I remember before uh, the state race, uh, the four teammates of us that got to go over to the state tournament were talking, and we all agreed that my friend Nate, who was one of the two running in the race, what he should do this race is try to run as fast as he can to be in first place during the race as long as he can, uh, because what a glorious achievement to be in first place at state, even if you don't finish there. And so uh, we line, they line up for the race, the pistol goes off, and Nate takes off like a bat out of hell. And he is pacing the reigning state champ, and our coach is just screaming at him to pace himself and slow down, Nate, slow down. And this is not what coaches usually yell at their runners, slow down, but this is how it was. And uh, and if you've ever been to a cross-country meet, you know that they're taking off, this case it was a golf course, so they're taking off uh, across this golf course, and they're going to you know, run 3.14 miles across this golf course. And so the fans, you kind of... You run to one spot and you watch them run by there and you run over another spot. And so our coach is out there zigzagging back and forth across the the course, yelling at Nate to run slower. (laughs) It was hilarious. Anyhow, about a third of the way or halfway through the race, uh, Nate ends up just hitting a wall. And and he's, you know, jogging the rest of the way with a sick look on his face and and maybe finished, you know, middle of the pack, 70th or 80th place out of a 150 runners. And of course, after the race, our coach comes just demanding that he explain himself because uh, to start a cross-country race in such an unorthodox manner is, is an inexcusable uh, mistake. And, and, and Nate reasoned with him that he knew he wasn't going to win the race. And so he just figured he would, he would enjoy being in first place as long as he could because, you know, running the whole race in 50th place isn't that great. And um, to me, his strategy made perfect sense. And if you think about it, his strategy does make perfect sense because his goal wasn't to win. If you want to win a race or if you want to run your best time, you pace yourself, you run a smart race. But his goal was to be memorable and to entertain his friends, I think. And and that goal was really achieved. I still laugh when I think about him leading the pack of the best runners in Washington State for at least a mile or so while our coach is losing his mind. But his goal wasn't to win. I was reading through Paul's letter to the Philippians recently, and I was struck by the author's use of the concept of winning uh, in chapter 3. You know, in chapter 3, Paul prefaces the winning talk with some incredible words that describe just how much his relationship with Christ means to him. And so we'll begin with those words, but uh, Paul starts the chapter out by laying out his impressive resume as, as a dutiful, top-tier Jewish Pharisee. And speaking in chapter 3 of his former religious life and his excellence in the practice of the Jewish religion, he says these words in verse 7. 
He says, whatever of those were gains to me, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. You know, before I read any further, I I just want to point out that we're going to come across this word know. He said, worth knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. We're going to come across this word a couple more times, and, and the Greek language has a number of different words that we might translate into English as know or knowledge. You know, in the Greek, the word that's used there communicates knowing something experientially. The, the word denotes an active relation or an active relationship between the person who is understanding something and, and their understanding is growing in relation to this object or their understanding is growing in relation to the person that they're getting to know. And, and it's really more about uh, this, this kind of growing knowledge and intimacy that that might happen between friends as they walk with each other and encounter various seasons of life together, rather than the kind of knowing or obtaining knowledge that we might get from, you know, I'll ask my kids, what did you learn at school today? Or, um, you know, talking, lo- talking about the interesting thing, you just learned uh, reading something online. Um, you know, I've always struggled to communicate the difference between these kinds of knowing because in English, our language is, is somewhat limited when it comes to describing concepts like knowledge. We don't have a variety of words to describe different kinds of knowledge the same way that some other languages do. And, and many uh, social scientists have, have posited over the years that language has a real shape on thought. And so the fact that our language doesn't have complex ways of describing various kinds of knowledge means that our brains aren't used to even conceptualizing different ways of categorizing knowledge. One helpful illustration I found uh, on this whole topic, though, is through my limited knowledge of the Spanish language. So I took some Spanish in high school and some Spanish in college and and always thought I would be good at speaking Spanish someday. I'm not, but I know enough to know that there are two primary verbs for for the the verb of to know in Spanish. If, If I'm wanting to tell you about something that I've learned today, a fact that I learn today, I will use the Spanish verb saber. But if I'm asking a question about something that happened or I'm looking for an answer, again, something that's fact-based, I would use that verb saber again. But if I'm asking you about something relational, for example, do you know so-and-so, like as a friend, then I would use the Spanish verb conocer. And so built into the Spanish language is this acknowledgement that there are very different kinds of knowledge. It's one thing to know what two plus two is, and it's quite another thing to know where your wife wants to go to dinner. I think we all are understanding the concept a little bit more now. Um, so we have relational knowledge or experiential knowledge, and we have uh, knowledge that we learn from, uh, from reading uh, or from being taught. Anyhow, Paul is continuing on this theme. He says, I consider it all garbage all of those former things I consider garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God is on a basis of faith. In verse 10, he says, I want to know Christ. I want to experience Christ. I want to walk with him. I want to talk with him. I want to live in active relation to Christ. Yes, to know, to experience again, the power of his resurrection. 
and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. What Paul is getting at here, it might be akin to someone saying, I don't want to just read stories about Jesus or learn lessons about Jesus or sing songs about Jesus. I don't want my religion to be a religion that's lived in the Sunday school class or in the church, you know, lecture hall. I want to know him. I want to walk with him. I want to experience his his life intertwined in my life and and I want to hear his voice and and he 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 has to be more than just a religion of the mind for me. He has to be something that impacts my heart on a relational way. And that walking with God, that relationship with Christ is a package deal for Paul. In other words, to to know Christ is and to walk with him for Paul to share in his eternal life is also to share in his suffering. It's to share in his persecution. It's to share in his sacrifice. And for Paul, this isn't just talk. This isn't just, you know, healthy Christians who've never missed a meal in their entire lives talking about all they've given up to follow Jesus. This is is a man who, throughout his own ministry, throughout his own life, Paul, in joining himself to Christ, was joined to his suffering. He constantly submitted himself to the abuse at the hands of authorities in his life. He he constantly submitted himself to unjust persecution. And and even in, in regards to his relationship to the church, instead of demanding wages that were due to him as an apostle and a faithful servant in the church, he would moonlight as a tent maker to not be a financial burden to anyone. Ultimately, he lays down his life for the gospel and is martyred. Uh, this isn't Paul just preaching a message and then uh, saying whatever it takes to, you know, fill the pews and the offering plate. This is Paul sharing about who he is and his experiences and what he's walked through. And I think at this point, we have to acknowledge that this gospel, to be joined to Christ in his suffering, is not the American gospel. So much of the religious of our fabric of our culture has had the heresy weaved into it that to know Christ is to be blessed in all that one does. And, and to be the be God's people is to, to have entitlement, to enjoy supremacy and success. Uh, sometimes to know Christ means to have a license, to use our power and our influence to judge or even exploit others. This might be the American gospel. This is not the gospel found in Scripture. At best, this gospel is just one side of the coin, right? Uh, at worst, it's a, it's a horrible heresy from the pit of hell. But, but let's just give it the benefit of the doubt and say it's just emphasizing one side of the coin. And yet, any time that we only ever see one side of the coin, we, we know that someone somewhere must be cheating. Somewhere we're not getting the full picture. Paul continues in verse 12. He says, not that I've already attained this or that I've already arrived at my goal, but I do press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I think about this fact that Christ Jesus took hold of me so that I could be joined to him, so that I might know him. He took hold of you so that you might walk with him. And again, to know him is to be joined to him in his suffering and his sacrifice and in his blessings and in his eternal life. And I think over this last year, and and how many times have I asked this question in my last year? What the heck is going on? I mean, where are you, God? What are you doing? Why are we suffering? Why are the wicked prospering while the good die young? How can you let a society get away with, with seeing Black Friday shopping as more essential than people gathering to worship together? 
How can the world be this way? And maybe you've had similar questions. And I think it's, it's very reasonable to experience these kinds of doubts and questions when we're experiencing a year that has so often shown the side of the coin that, uh, the, you know, the suffering side of the coin, the side of the coin that in all likelihood has been greatly underemphasized, if, if not completely ignored and left face down for so much of our religious upbringing or, or our religious training. We just did not grow up in the kind of society that, that emphasized to us from an early age that suffering is part of the package with Christ. And so in the midst of all these challenges, in the midst of all the suffering, these questions come up. And I think it'd be very easy, indeed, even understandable in the midst of these questions to just give up on the goal. But what happens if we give up? Earlier, I mentioned injuries derailing our cross-country team my senior year. And uh, one injury was that I severely sprained my ankle running at the Kelso Invite in the middle of uh, my senior season. And although by the end of the season of the district race, my ankle was, was healing up, there wasn't a lot of pain with it, it was, it's really difficult to keep your wind up and, and to feel like you're 100% after having that kind of a disruption through your regular training routine in the middle of a season. And so there I was in the district race about two miles into the race. I was in a great position. I was easily qualifying for a place to go to state. Uh, I was easily in place to score a good, a good number of points for my team. Uh, you want to score low points for your team. So I was going to score low points for my team. But, you know, I was tired. I, I was so tired and, and so disillusioned that I lost sight of the goal. And, you know, I really felt like I had great excuses. And so in the middle of the race, I, I just quit running. I ran past a bench on a, on a golf course. And, and as I ran past it, I, I just decided to sit down. Instead of pressing on towards the goal of, making it to state and scoring well so my team could make it to state, I decided that my goal was to not have practice next week and to gain a little break before basketball season started. And so I sat down on the bench. I just quit running. And you know, my decision to quit didn't just impact me. After a little breather on the bench, I decided I'd take a shortcut and head back over to the finish line and see how the race finished out. And one of my teammates spotted me while I was walking off of the course. And, and although he was in a great position too, he was in position to qualify for state, he would have scored low points, he would have helped the team. He saw me, and I, I remember, you know, our eyes kind of meet, and his face just dropped, and the wind was taken out of his sails, and runners started passing him left and right as he sort of struggled his way down the last leg of the race to the finish line. Ultimately, he missed state by a few spots, and our team missed qualifying by a few points. And I think back on that moment and the impact that my decision to stop running, my decision to give up on the goal, had on the people around me. You know, when we don't run to win, when we give up on the goal, it impacts people around us. We need to keep running to win, even when it's difficult, because we need each other to keep running to win. Paul closes his remarks on the subject with these words in verse 13. He says, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. The race isn't over. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You're reflecting on this last year as we close it out together and as we prepare to start a new year together, I want to ask you to do one thing. Understanding that 
this last season has been very difficult. Understanding that you might have every good excuse in the world to quit running. Maybe some of you even have. Maybe you're hearing this as you listen, sitting on the bench. But as as a shepherd in this community, I want to ask that you would indulge me in this one request, that you would forget about what lies behind. And I don't mean forget it like it never happened, but, but when the past struggles would present themselves as excuses to give up, to quit, when it's tempting to take a rest on the bench while the rest of the world runs on because it's just been too hard, I would encourage you to forget what lies behind, to strain forward toward what is ahead. Yes, it's a struggle. Yes, it's a strain. I'm sure it is. Everything worth doing tends to be harder than the fruitless, easy endeavors. Running is always harder than sitting. But I want to ask that you would press on towards the goal and win the prize for which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. One of the most hopeful truths of our faith is that in Christ, we know we're destined to win if we just keep running. And so as we close out 2020 together, I want to encourage you to keep running, to not give up, to believe that some, somewhere out there, maybe in a little different spot for each of us, but somewhere out there, there is a finish line that you are invited to keep running until you cross it. And you are promised that if you keep running until you cross it, you will win. And so let's keep running together toward the victory that is ours in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have been there before us. We thank you that you have walked the long and difficult road that is life here on earth. We we thank you that as we walk that long, difficult road, we can, uh, we're just offered at times glimpses of your nearness to us. Uh, We're offered echoes of your footsteps on the road with us. Uh, We're offered at times the strength of your arms carrying us forward and keeping us going. And we pray that for those, especially those who are weary uh, during this season, those who are considering giving up, uh, we ask that they would be filled with the strength of your Holy Spirit. They would find your new, fresh breath in their lungs. They would feel your power surging through their arms and legs, and they would not give up as they press on towards the prize. We believe that you are faithful to bring each of us home, and so we just lean into your faithfulness as we finish this year and as we look on to the next one, believing that you are faithful through all ages. In Jesus' name, amen.